When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate hosts a Let It Roll telepathic interview with the still-living but unavailable Marianne Faithful and her co-author David Dalton to discuss her autobiography, Faithful. This is the first of two parts that discusses her discovery by Rolling Stones manager Andrew Lug Oldham and her time in the Rolling Stones inner circle. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm summoning by telepathy the spirits of the still-living Marianne Faithful and her autobiographer, David Dalton. They together wrote a book called Faithful, an autobiography. I think it came out around 2000, so about 20 years old. Yep, the year 2000, 23 years old. It's quite a book. Um, it's fascinating for any fan of Mary Ann Faithful, whose work is well worth consideration in its own right. And it's also incredibly fascinating if you're obsessed with the Rolling Stones and their dynamic, because she had love affairs with all three of the principals. Obviously, she was Mick Jagger's partner very publicly for several years at the peak of the 60s. She also had brief flings with Keith Richards and Brian Jones and was very close to Anita Pallenberg when Anita was Brian Jones' girl and when she became Keith's girl. So it's it's quite a tale, and it's kind of a classic tale of somebody who – I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. This was a woman who had no ambitions to be a musician whatsoever, was discovered, quote-unquote, by Andrew Lou Goldham at a party in 1964 – And, you know, I think he said somewhere, if you lived 2,000 years ago, you'd uh, sail a ship for Helen of Troy. If you lived in 1964, you'd put out a single by Marianne Faithful. That was his his attitude about Marianne Faithful. And that brought her into a world uh, where she met and got to know the Rolling Stones. It actually took uh, a period of a couple of years before she got tight with the Stones. 
And then she got deeply involved first with uh, Brian Jones and Anita Pallenberg at their house in Courtfield Road. But let's start the story properly. I'm planning to do this in two episodes because there's too much, just so much of the story. And I want to explore it in depth because both it adds a ton of original information to the Rolling Stones narrative that I've been trying to put together. And it also, it's just undeniable that Mary Ann Faithful had a real fascinating story of her own and became a true artist in her own right and and put out compelling albums uh, and compelling musical work well into the late 70s and and beyond. Uh, this woman's continued to perform live over the decades. I think she's currently retired, but really an incredible, incredible person. So um starts out, she was the uh, sort of semi-orphan child of a German immigrant to England. Her mother was a countess of some sort, but one who didn't have access to the royal money anymore. And uh, there's quite a bit of interesting about her childhood and the various male relationships uh, her mother had in the period. She was kind of a kept woman uh, for, a, for a wealthy London aristocrat, but, you know, kept... Marianne uh, isolated from that. And when we talk about Andrew Lloyd Oldham's autobiographies in a couple episodes, we'll see he was yet another one of these sort of war half orphans whose whose life was impacted by the death of his father in World War II. But we'll start the story proper with her meeting with John Dunbar. John Dunbar is not a guy who gets a ton of attention, but he was a very notable literary scenester in London. He's somebody who worked with Barry Miles, and Paul McCartney is one of the co-owners of the Indica Bookstore, which is where John Lennon met Yoko Ono at, at one of her first art exhibits in London in 1966. So right from the get, she's a scenester, although it's not the rock and roll scene she's she's into. She's very much connected with this literary and junkie scene. John Dunbar was a druggie from very early on, and it's also interesting to contrast his attitudes about his conduct and his attitudes about her conduct. She was pretty much, I think, a, a virgin and not just sexually, but a very innocent teen when she met John Dunbar, who was only a few years older than her, but he was already this very worldly guy. And she was kind of uh, independent, semi-orphaned, and and they ended up becoming engaged and living together. And then um, they go to a party and... Let's see. I'll read, I'll read it the way that Marianne described it to David Dalton. She said, according to pop mythology, my life proper began at Adrian Posta's launching party in March 1964, for it was there I first met Mick Jagger. Mick fell in love with me on the spot, or so the story goes, decided I was fit to be his consort and wrote As Tears Go By. I, on the other hand, immediately began shooting heroin and having a lot of sex. Now this is a, she's being ironic there, that didn't happened that fast. In fact, it was several years before uh, she even dated Mick Jagger and much less uh, got involved in heroin. But all of that did did come to pass. Um, that Here's her description of meeting Andrew Luke Oldham at the party. And Adrian Post, I want to mention, was a debutante. So she's one of these upper-class Brits who was beginning to host parties where people like the Rolling Stones at first performed and then later became guests. The Kinks uh, in particular played the debutante circuit quite a bit around this time. So it was a 
sort of an odd period where the the wealthy youth of London were interested in slumming with these uh, rockers who were coming up in the wake of the Beatles. So anyway, Marianne says, I was sitting on the heater next to John when I noticed this strange creature, all beaky and angular like some bird of prey, lunge toward me. He looked powerful and dangerous and very sure of himself. I was glad when at the last minute he spun around and with his back to me addressed John. Who is she? Can she act? What's her name? Handing John in the same breath an oversized, flashily printed card that read, Andrew Lou Goldham. He called everyone darling, especially men. It made them nervous, and that gave Andrew an edge. Andrew was all edge. He exuded menace, shock, razor blade, hipness. John said, she's called Marianne Faithful, actually. Oh, do come on, darling. You'll have to do better than that. I couldn't believe it either when I first heard it, said John, but it really is her name. I must be magnetically attracted to chicks with outrageous names. I once went out with a girl named Penelope Heaven, or so she said. Everyone laughed at that, and then Andrew asked, almost as an afterthought, can she sing? John, I think she can. Why the hell not? You can sing, can't you, Marianne? And that was that. And then she goes on, I want to get her description of Andrew Lou Golden because he's a very important character in the Stone story, and I don't think I've done him justice in previous episodes. She says, I'd never met anyone like Andrew before. He was genuinely weird. He radiated an intoxicating sense of folly. All manner of mad schemes from fashion to movies to pop art bubbled out of him and garbled lightning asides. He was wearing eyeshadow, very outrageous for those days. He was slightly effeminate looking, but this, this only added to his fascination. He later told me he had exaggerated the effete posturing for John's benefit. It was Andrew's way of hoodwinking the boyfriends of girls he was putting the make on. Once they saw the pancake makeup and the eyeliner, they were off their guard. So... Then she tells the story of how Andrew basically rushed her into the studio to record a single. And his original idea was to get Lionel Bart. And Lionel Bart's best remembered today as the uh, composer from the musical Oliver. I don't know how many of you guys remember that, but it was a massive hit in, uh, at first in London and then on Broadway in the late 60s and then became a very popular uh, hit movie musical in the 70s. But before that, Lionel Bart had been uh, Larry Parnes main songwriter and Larry Parnes was this was the rock impresario of the late 50s who managed people like uh Duffy Power and Marty Wilde and um Billy Fury and and others that that epitomized British pop before before even Cliff Richard but definitely before the Beatles and in fact Tommy Steele the first of these creatures that Larry Parnes renamed was um his first song, Rock with the Caveman, was written by Lionel Bart. So Lionel Bart wrote uh, a song for Marianne Faithful that she couldn't sing. It was in three, four waltz time. It was one the kind of song that required it to be in the right key to go with the singer's voice. She was a completely inexperienced singer, so she didn't know what keys worked for her. The musicians weren't really bothered to try. Uh, and, and anyway, and let's hear the song that she recorded instead or that became the was going to be the B-side and became the A-side and became a major hit for her in England. This is Marianne Faithful singing the first song written by Jagger and Richards, or one of the first songs written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, As Tears Go By. Watch the 
And that was As Tears Go By by Mary and Faithful. The Stones later recorded it, like, I think a year and a half later, recorded it and released it as a hit in America, where it was kind of their answer to the Beatles yesterday, an attempt to uh, join the sort of Baroque pop movement and capitalize on, on the novelty of, of rock singers uh, singing songs backed by string quartets. But I personally, for my dollar, I think Marianne Faithful's version is the definitive version. And it's, it's one of the songs that was... Inf- famously written by Mick and Keith after Andrew Luke Oldham locked him up in his kitchen after the two of them moved out of the flat they shared with Brian Jones and moved in with a flat they shared with Andrew Luke Oldham, which is the perfect metaphor for the transfer of power in the band from from Brian to Andrew in this period. And and Lou Goldham didn't take any time at all to figure out that Brian Jones was not going to be a successful A&R man, that he was not somebody who could either write or find hits, and they needed to write their own hits because that's where the money was in in song publishing and i think he also realized that linking mick and keith together in this way would cement their bond and freeze brian out and oldham and brian jones had already been at loggerheads uh basically were immediately at loggerheads so anyway marianne records this song it suddenly becomes a hit and they put her on the road and basically they just put her on a bus and said go and she, she had no repertoire uh no no backing band she had to play with the, the backing band that was on tour and she's this very young, incredibly, incredibly beautiful woman uh, in the in the uh, early 60s. So it was a sexual free-for-all on those tours. And she immediately has love affairs with Alan Clark, the lead singer of the Hollies. Uh, on the next tour, she has a love affair with Gene Pitney, the, the pop singer, the American pop singer. She um, Ray Davis of the Kinks in his autobiography – insinuates that he had some kind of affair. He claims he injured his ankle jumping out of her window. But from Marianne's side, here's what she had to say about the kinks. Seems very unlikely she had an affair with with Ray. The kinks were very gothic, creepy and silent. They never spoke. This was long before the drunken, rowdy kinks. They were uptight and fearful of everyone, terrified. Underneath which, there was all this weird, dysfunctional family stuff going on. They hated each other. They weren't good old northern lads like the Hollies. It was a tense London vibe. And and that's that's her, her summary of the kinks. And then on the, and she also has an affair with Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy. And, and uh, then she has this weird encounter on her next tour with Roy Orbison, who um, literally walked into her room and said, uh, I'm in room 301, baby, and left. And she says the assumption was that he had, you know, droid to sig the right of kings to to have sexual access to every woman on the tour because of his stature as the biggest rock star on the tour. And she leaves every impression that she went along with it. So it was the early 60s, and she um, sort of epitomized the attitude of many women of her generation that that it, it was good to be open to these sexual experiences and, and to go, but still kind of in a passive role. So it's pretty fascinating perspective on an era that's very different from uh, de- definitely different from what I knew in the 90s and very different from the dynamic that I perceive Gen Z to be having going on. And she also talks about how um, her early uh, attempts at a stage career, she, she was already being offered parts 
in pretty prestigious plays in London and her management, uh, who Andrew Lou Golden by this time had handed her off to his partner, Tony Calder after the first single. And, um, they they refused to let her do the stage play, so she fired him and got a more traditional uh, uh, booker, and um, and you know continues to tour and perform. And she had multiple hits in England throughout this period and continued to tour relatively uh, successfully. But the next sort of fascinating piece is meeting Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan came to London in 1965 at a time when he was really the king of the scene. This guy was. The he'd already had multiple number one hits that he had written for people like Peter, Paul and Mary and others um, and was becoming increasingly well known as a performer in his own right. He famously sang at the March on Washington uh, going on, I think, right before Martin Luther King. I mean, very high profile guy, He's somebody that the Beatles and the Stones both deferred to as their songwriting superior. Everyone in America, like according to Michael Bloomfield and others in the scene said, you know, this was the most compelling performer in the in the folk scene and in the American music scene in general. And so uh, it's interesting that Mary Ann describes herself as um, becoming. Let's see how she puts it. The uh, apparent consort that that uh, her she's actually married to John Dunbar by this point, and when she's when Dylan and his entourage come to London, she's drawn into it. Shows up at the you know is invited to the party at at his hotel, and pretty soon people are clearing the way for her and Bob to be alone together. His uh, fiance and future wife Sarah, I want to say Lowry, but that's not a right name, uh, was out of town, and. Sarah Lowndes, that's correct, L-O-W-N-D-E-S. So as Marianne says, within a matter of days, I had been elevated to chief prospective consort. There seemed to be no other rivals at all. I was the chosen one, the sacrificial virgin. Bob's soon-to-be wife, Sarah Lowndes, was off in Europe somewhere. And anyway, he'd given me the impression that she was just some girl I knew from somewhere. Another one of those women who followed Dylan around, women whose souls, I assumed, had been sucked dry by breaking the taboo and copulating with the god and who are now condemned to wandering ghostly procession to the expensive hotel lobbies. She's talking about Joan Baez, and she mentions her by name as one of these women who had been chewed up and then cast off by Dylan. And Baez actually followed him around on the British tour. It's all documented in the documentary, Don't Look Back, expecting that he would invite her on stage, as she had done for him when she was a much bigger star in America, and he never did. And poor Joan is rejected throughout the movie, much the same way as as Donovan or Animal, Alan Price of the Animals are kind of put up for mockery and rejected by Dylan and his crowd with like Bobby Newworth and others. But then the denouement is that um, Marianne ends up, you know, finally being alone with Dylan in his bedroom, and he's just feverishly at his typewriter writing her poetry. And so it didn't work out. Marianne was not the kind of girl who wanted uh, to be presented with copious amounts of, of prose poems in the bedroom. So it was, it was a, it was a different scene. But it's also interesting before I get to our next song, I want to talk about his interactions with the stones and the Beatles. And she, she says, um, he ignored the stones. They'd all sit on the couch with their topsy hair like little teddy bears devouring the room, and he'd hardly look at them. 
Dylan was so funny about all of them. He simply carried on as if none of them was present. And this is in a context where Dylan and Brian Jones had been long distance phone buddies for about a year. And Dylan was very fascinated with Brian Jones. I mean, it's believed that the song Like a Rolling Stone was about Brian Jones. It's also believed something is happening here and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones, was a reference to Brian because Dylan knew how paranoid he was. The song's literally about a pretty thick-headed Time Magazine reporter who interviewed him, and, and that interview's in the Don't Look Back movie. But it's also believed that Dylan deliberately chose the name Mr. Jones to mess with his friend Brian because he knew how paranoid Brian Jones was, and he and Bobby Newworth would frequently play on that and and use it to intimidate and and freak Brian out. But this, this encounter with Paul McCartney is even more interesting. It says, Dylan didn't pay much attention to the Beatles at all, actually, except for John. John Lennon he adored, so hanging out with John was always good. But Paul McCartney got a very cool reception. I saw Paul come in with an acetate of a track he'd been working on. It was very far out for its time, with all kinds of distorted electronic things on it, and Paul was obviously proud of it. He put it on the turntable in his eager, earnest way and stood back in anticipation, but Dylan just walked out of the room. It was unbelievable. The expression on Paul's face was priceless. And I'm sure if you're somebody in the British pop scene at the time, seeing uh, Paul McCartney cut down to size like that must have been quite, quite a sight. Well, this is, let's go ahead and hear our next song. And this is an instrumental version of the Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday. And you're probably asking, what on earth does Ruby Tuesday have to do with Mary Ann Faithful? Well, Mary Ann Faithful claimed she was present at its composition, and it was not composed by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So let's hear the instrumental backing of Ruby Tuesday. And now it's strictly the instrumentals from the Rolling Stones version of Ruby Tuesday, the original and definitive version. And uh, it introduces a next chapter in, in Anita, in Marianne Faithful's life. And that's when she, um, as she described it, she does it in sort of a real time way. She says, I'm on my way to Brian and Anita's flat in Courtfield Road, carried along the river of Sloan Street before catching a taxi to Earl's Court. Smoke a couple of joints in Anita, then on to Robert Fraser's gallery, after which something, but what? Oh, well, it'll come to me. It's the summer of 1966, but for me it is year one. I've been adopted by Brian Anita. Brian and Anita. My God, can you imagine that's me? <laughs> anyway, and their flat in Courtfield Road has become my second home. I'm trying to make a beeline there, but everywhere I look there's some insane distraction blah 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 and she's talking about all the shops on uh, uh king's road at the time and then she goes on to say courtfield road brian jones and anita pallenberg's apartment off gloucester road during the heady painted black summer of 1966 it's almost 30 years since i last set foot in the place a veritable witch's coven of decadent illuminati rock princelings and hip aristocrats in my mind's eye i open the door peeling paint clothes newspapers and magazines strewn everywhere a grotesque little stuffed goat standing on an amp two 
huge tulle sunflowers, a Moroccan tambourine, lamps draped with scarves, a pictographic painting of demons, perhaps by Brian, and decorously draped over a tatty armchair, a legendary leg, Robert Fraser's. And Robert Fraser was a major art gallery dealer in London who's later going to be busted along with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards at Redlands, Keith Richards' medieval castle. And uh, Fraser went down for heroin and did serious prison time, and his career was destroyed. And so she uh, – um, just a little bit more about Courtfield Road. She describes it as a dissolute night watch, referring to the painting by Rembrandt, of mid-60s swinging London, hypness, decadence, and exquisite tailoring such as England had not seen since the restoration of Charles II. We were young, rich, and beautiful – and the tide, we thought, was turning in our favor. We were going to change everything, of course, but mostly we were going to change the rules. Unlike our parents, we would never have to renounce our youthful hedonism in favor of the insane world of adulthood. And that um, is just a taste. Uh, and here's, here's our bit about Anita Pallenberg and Brian Jones. She says, how Anita came to be with Brian is really the story of how the stones became the stones. She almost single-handedly engineered a cultural revolution in London by bringing together the stones and the jeunesse dorée. I believe that's the idle rich. I'm not sure. My French is terrible. Apologies. Like many things in that era, it all began with a party. Through her boyfriend, the painter Mario Schifano, Anita had become friendly with Lord Harlech's children, Jane, Julian, and Victoria Ormsby Gore, and through them, she had got to know a group of young aristocrats and wealthy dilettantes. In this circle were Robert Fraser, Sir Mark Palmer, Christopher Gibbs, and Tara Brown. They were all infatuated with pop stars. The Jeunesse Dorée were in awe of the pop kingdom where young girls threw themselves at the feet of yobbish dandies with guitars, rock stars who were already parodying the decadent nobility the past and their foppish clothing and manners were equally impressed by these young hip aristos. A union of the two later seemed inevitable, but no one had the foggiest idea about how, how to go about it, except for our Anita. And so I think that's very important to get to the cultural impact. I mean, Anita Pallenberg and Marianne Faithful were much more than girlfriends of the Stones. They were both personalities and forces in their own right and social dynamos who particularly Anita Pallenberg who uh, as as Marianne's describing is bringing together these these worlds and Tara Brown whom she mentioned he was the heir to the Guinness beer fortune but he's most remembered today as the man who blew his mind out in a car uh, the guy that John Lennon's singing about in the Beatles a day in the life he died at 21 in a car wreck when he took too much LSD and drove way too fast in downtown London he was he was um, very much close friends with Brian Jones through this period, which uh, kind of tells you where he was at at that phase in his life. Um, and then and, and there's a little bit more I want to read about Keith in this period. My first stop of the evening was always Brian and Anita's. Keith Richards practically lived there too. He and Brian were fast friends in those days. Every day, Keith would walk all the way from his flat in St. John's Wood, about four miles into Gloucester Road. After he broke up with Linda Keith, his girlfriend at the time, he took to spending even more time at Courtfield Road. Supposedly, he no longer had a place to stay, but I always suspected it was to get closer to Anita. Keith just exuded lonely bachelorhood, and naturally, Brian and Anita always let him crash there. And then she describes uh, the chaos of the Courtfield Road. It, the Courtfield Road flat itself was a grungy place, mattress on the floor, sink piled high with dirty dishes, posters half falling down, 
but Christopher had insisted Anita buy it. You simply have to get it, darling. With a little tidying up, it could be absolutely ravishing. And of course it could have been. It was your classic artist studios with very high ceilings, skylights, huge windows, and one very large room with a winding staircase up to a minstrel's gallery. But of course, um, Brian and Anita did nothing with it. She says, Brian would sit on the floor very high and tell you what it was going to look like when he got it together. Anita and Brian were like two beautiful children who had inherited a decrepit palazzo. Every day they would dress up in their furs and satins and velvets and parade about and invite people over. And we would all sit on the floor and talk about the fantastic things we would do with the kingdom if we could only get it. Then she describes um, the evening when Brian Jones makes a pass at her. She said, uh, I I had the oddest feeling he was simply being polite. I was in his flat. I was a pretty girl, and he was a rolling stone, making it almost de rigueur that he make a pass at me. It was the new sexual politesse. And I, for my part, thought, oh, he's making a play for me. I really should let him. I figured that's what a flowered child did, hippie etiquette. You just sort of went along, didn't you? I didn't really fancy Brian, and I was truly terrified of Anita. But Anita, unfortunately, was out of town, and Brian and I, needless to say, were both very high. So after several large spliffs and what I gathered was courtship patter involving the flying Scotsman, Mary Wells, William Morris wallpaper and tantric art, Brian led me up the little staircase to the minstrel's gallery. We lay down on a mattress and he unbuttoned my blouse. But after a bit of groping about it, it just fizzled out. He was a wonderfully feeble guy, quite incapable of real sex. And of course, he was doing a lot of mandracks, which rendered him even more wobbly than he already was. Brian only had so much injury and energy. And it's interesting. This is the same guy who had at least six illegitimate children by the time he was 22. By this point in his life at 23 to 24, um, he was strung out on drugs. Mandrax is a British version of what we would call quaaludes later on in the 70s. It's something that Sid Barrett infamously took way too much of after he blew his mind out on LSD. A very powerful downer and not the kind of thing you take to enhance your sexual performance. Uh, some of Brian's other lovers at the time, Anita Pallenberg described him as the passion of her life to the end of her days. It's the best lover she'd ever had. Uh, Nico uh, of the um, Velvet Underground uh, had similar experiences when she said when he could perform, he was this amazing lover, but he frequently was, was too messed up. And then with Nico, he was particularly sadistic, but that's a story for a different day. Um, and then a little bit about the power dynamics of the stones and the way uh, Marianne observed them. She said, Mick and Brian were always far more interested in the power shifts in the group than Keith. But of course, it was whoever allied himself with Keith who would have the power. The balance in the group was completely different from what it was later to become. The guitar players, Brian and Keith, were inseparable, with Mick and Andrew Oldham off in the other corner. They were all quite far from their satanic majesties or whatever it is they're supposed to have become. Their persona were gradually forming out of a their personae were gradually forming out of a blend of blues mythology and King's Road noblesse oblige, like boys playing in suits of armor shortly before a voice out of the clouds comes and tells them, thou shalt be princes of darkness. So, and this is something that's interesting. A lot of the, um, well, I'll take a sponsor break. When we come back, I'll talk about the Stones power dynamic. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So the interesting thing about this book, and and it's something that's glossed over in two of what I think are the definitive um, Rolling Stones books, and and one is The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones by Stanley Booth, which I'll continue to say to my dying day is the best literary work ever written about rock and roll. I think it's a great American nonfiction novel right up there with Truman Capote's In Cold Blood or anything um, by Tom Wolfe or Norman Mailer's nonfiction stuff like The Executioner Song. It's a, it's a great literary achievement. It just happens to be about a rock band. But Booth wasn't around in 66 he didn't come on the scene until 68 where he did meet brian and know brian and he definitely he toured with with mick and keith in 69 and the whole rolling stones and then became a tight associate of keith for several years after that and survived to tell the tale but in his telling of it you know brian has this early initial period where he's the dominant player but by 63 late 63 64 he's been basically pushed off into a corner and never recovers what actually happened, according to Marianne Faithful, who was there at the time, and, and um, the book Old God's Almost Dead by Stephen, I can't remember the name of, of the author, apologies. He also wrote Hammer of the Gods about Led Zeppelin, but Davis, I want to say. Um, but the book Old God's Almost Dead, it gets this part correctly, that the dynamic shifted. And they shifted when Brian met Anita and Keith met Anita. As soon as Keith Richards saw Anita Pallenberg with Brian Jones – he was mad magnetically drawn to Brian and you can hear it in their music starting in 1965 with a number of guitar weaving songs like when blue turns to gray, um, I'm free, etc. songs where Brian and Keith are creating these, uh, pretty simple, but intricately interlocked guitar parts that create a whole much more than the sum of their parts. And then Brian basically takes over the aftermath album, uh, once again, acting as the arranger of the band, like he had in the early days and adding this amazing swirl of instruments, you know, slide guitar, harmonica, like he'd already done. Um, but also fuzz guitar, sitar, uh, dulcimer, organ on and on and on you know he, he plays a different instrument on virtually every song on the album and is and is a dominant force on the album even though it's the first album that's completely comprised of songs written by jagger and richard so so this alliance between mick and uh, between keith and brian 
is at this peak from late 65 through uh, early 67. And um, it's happening, though, in a context where Brian is completely falling apart. Um, she said, let's see, she's, uh, Marianne describes the relationship between Anita and um Brian, she says, what a scene. They were both dauntless shoppers and excessively vain. Hours and hours were spent putting on clothes and taking them off again. Heaps of scarves, hats, shirts, and boots flew out of drawers and trunks, unending trying on of outfits, primping and sashaying. They were beautiful. They were the spitting image of each other, and not an ounce of modesty existed between the two of them. I would sit mesmerized for hours, watching them preening in the mirror, trying on each other's clothes. All roles and gender would evaporate in these narcissistic performances, where Anita would turn Brian into the Sun King, Francois Hardy, or the mirror image of herself. It's also widely believed that Bob Dylan's album Blonde on Blonde is named for Brian and Anita, both of whom had big shocks of blonde hair. But then then there's a darker side of the relationship, and Marianne discusses it. She says, Anita loved him very much, but there was some ugly stuff going on between them. There were often bruises on her arms. No one ever said anything. What would there be to say? We all knew it was Brian. Anita is not the sort of feminine, confiding person who invites speculation into her private life. It would have been a point of honor on her part not to say anything. Anita wanted at all costs to be considered invincible, and she always seemed to know exactly what she was doing. And and then she says, um, when I first met Brian Jones, he was on one of his brief upswings. But even during this manic phase, a doomed look began to set in his face. Inner demons had begun eating away at that renaissance angel's head. Whatever was wrong with Brian began a long time before. You have only to look at childhood pictures of Mick, Keith, and Brian to see it. After looking at snapshots of a little cheerful Mick and a strong, very tough little Keith, to suddenly come upon Brian's baby picture is quite startling. A jowly, miserable child is looking up at you with exactly that expression of helpless victimization he gave off in the last years of his life. Brian was a mess, neurasthenic and hypersensitive, twitchy. The slightest thing would set him off. He would let things gnaw at him, and he would brood. This paranoid condition worsened naturally on acid. Everybody would be laughing and looning about, and Brian would be over in the corner all crumpled up. It's Anita's belief that Brian never recovered from his first trip, but he embraced his horrors, as if on acid he was finally able to confront his afflictions in palpable form. Drowning voices in the pipes, traffic noises turning into sinister conversations. We've all heard these things on acid, God knows. Nevertheless, it's not too cool to announce that your appliances are plotting against you. For Brian, these thoughts were so incessant, he couldn't help himself. He simply verbalized what everyone else was thinking. Things I, for one, was thinking, but these outbursts left him open to ridicule, and they all taunted him. Keith would ask, it's the snakes again, is it, Brian? Then to us in the stage whisper, the snakes in the wiring, they're talking to Brian, followed by gales of laughter. Poor Brian was just somewhat uncool. He could summon coolness up, but fundamentally he wasn't cool at all. His was a false cool. Keith, on the other hand, really was cool, ice cool, always and he hasn't changed at all. He's gotten more and more strange-looking and developed this grand desperado carapace. But inside, Keith is not unlike his 22-year-old self. He has a wickedly twisted sense of humor that on acid could become quite diabolical. We'd be out on the balcony, and he'd whisper to Anita, Go on, darling, jump, why don't you? But she would turn with that wonderful smile of hers and tell him, You little fucker, what are you trying to do? And then she goes on to talk about 
how beautiful Keith was and how she had a huge crush on him. He was the epitome of my ideal of the tortured Byronic soul. It was quite clear even then he was a genius. He isn't a bit shy now, but when I first met him, he was agonizingly shy and painfully introverted. He didn't talk at all. I mean, all that stuff that Mick did, like trying to make me sit on his lap, Keith would rather have died than do anything like that. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's the uh, dynamic here, but let's go ahead and hear, hear, um, the, the full song. This is Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones, this time with vocals. Where she came from Yesterday don't matter if it's gone While the sun is bright Or in the darkest night No one knows she comes and goes. And then there's a, a great little bit where she goes to see um, the Rolling Stones playing in Bristol. And she's backstage as a guest of Keith and Brian. Keith and Brian met me at the stage door and took me backstage. I and Tina Turner were on the bill. And in the hallway outside the Stones dressing room, Mick was getting lessons in the sideways pony from Tina Turner, much to the amusement of the Iquettes. Mick could dance, but compared to Tina, he was, well, spastic. Black dance steps weren't something that came to him easily. Learning the sideways pony was for Mick like learning a pas de deux. He is English after all. On the two, honey, on the two, Tina would demonstrate a few steps and Mick would try to follow along. Let's try it again. One, two, three, four, five. God, Mick, you're scaring me. Brian and Keith were standing in the, door, in the corner, not even hiding their giggling. They were bluesmen from England's mental delta, after all, and thought Mick was a jerk for getting so intense about this dance step stuff. But it didn't rattle Mick at all. Um, then the next thing I want to get to is the composition of Ruby Tuesday, uh, which she was a witness of. Out of all the frenetic activity that went on, only one song, as far as I know, resulted during the entire time I was at Courtfield Road, and that was Ruby Tuesday. It was Brian's swan song, Jekyll and Hyde. At one point, he began to paint a mural of a graveyard on the wall behind the bed. Just above the pillows was a large headstone. He never got around to writing his name on it, but you knew that the headstone was for him. Today, you would put anybody in Brian's shaky condition straight into a hospital, but I didn't honestly, but I don't honestly think it crossed anyone's mind to quote, seek professional help. And he of course would never have accepted it. Um, and then she describes one particularly harrowing scene. There was no bell at Courtfield road. So in order to get into the flat, you had to shout up. Brian and, and Brian or Anita would throw the keys down or go down and open the door. One day we were all at the flat, Keith, Brian, Anita, myself, and one or two others. We were all quite stoned, and suddenly we heard people outside on the pavement calling up. But it wasn't the usual hippie growl of Brian, open the door, man. It was two troubled-sounding voices, a man's and a woman's, calling up. We all went out on the balcony to see who it was. There down below was Brian's old girlfriend with her two-year-old baby, Julian, and her father. This is Linda Lawrence. She, Marion doesn't name her, but that's who it is. She's going to later on marry Donovan Leach. Um, Linda Lawrence was raising the baby up in the air in a classic gesture of supplication, asking Brian for help, begging him. She wanted child support, and the baby was obviously Brian's. It's your kid, Brian. You know it is. We're really in a bad way. We need some help. Please. All with the father chiming in. You bloody do the right thing by her, boy, you hear? And this is a family Brian lived with for a year and a half. 
like a cuckoo bird in the nest pushing the babies out. He did this with multiple women, all of whom ended up pregnant and abandoned. But Brian and Anita just peered down on them as if they were some inferior species, foppish aristocrats in their finery, jeering at the sans-culottes below. Upstairs, everyone was laughing about it. It was so appalling, like something out of a Mexican folktale. But Anita and Brian seemed to enjoy every minute of it. So um, let's get back to the composition of Ruby Tuesday. Let me jump ahead to the key part. Ruby Tuesday... Um, let's see. There are some stone songs that are distinctly Keith's and others that are mixed. Let's spend the night together was mixed. It came out of that night we spent in the motel in Bristol. Ruby Tuesday was Keith's. Ruby Tuesday took forever to get, get down. It began, as I recall, with a bluesy Elizabethan fragment that Brian was fiddling with in the studio. Brian was obsessed by his notion of a hybrid of Elizabethan lute music and Delta blues and would hold forth on the essential similarities between Elizabethan ballads and Robert Johnson to anyone who would listen, a bemused Mike Bloomfield or an incredulous Jimi Hendrix, for instance. Sitting on a stool in his great white hat with scarves tied around the brim, Brian, in his sheepish way, very softly played a folkish nursery rhyme melody on the recorder. It was nothing more than a wispy tune, but it caught Keith's attention. He cocked his head. What's that? Sorry, man, I think I've got some matches upstairs. The thing you just played, man, on the recorder. Can you do it again? Brian came back into focus and played the quavery, lilting tune again on the recorder. Perfectly. Beyond perfect. Nice, man. Yeah, Keith said and went over to the piano to bang it out. Brian was beaming. It's a cross between Thomas Dowland's Air on the Late Lord Essex and a Skip James Blues, actually. Keith was not interested in Lord Essex or Skip James, for that matter. He had heard a riff and went at it like a dog with a bone. For ages, Ruby Tuesday had no lyrics, just this beautiful melody. It was very simple, and that's when Brian loved it most. Brian's recorder dominates the song. It's a second vocal, a plaintive gull hovering over the song. It was Brian and Keith's song. Mick, who'd collaborated with Keith on all the Stones originals for the last four years, had had little to do with Ruby Tuesday. He just came in at the end and put on the vocals. I'd seen during the sessions for Ruby Tuesday that this song had taken on an almost desperate significance for Brian. This collaboration was to be their last, and perhaps Brian could sense that. He knew it was one of the best things he'd ever done. He wanted everyone to say, that's great, Brian, wonderful, good work. But of course, nobody did. Um, and then uh, she she also talks about her courtship, mixed courtship of her and how it contrasted with the environment at Courtfield Road that they were at a party. She was at a party somewhere else and, and ended up in a room with Mick and another girl. And it was one of those situations where the two girls are kind of waiting each other out. And the other girl finally threw in the towel and left and, and Marianne spent the night with Mick. And, and she was charmed because he was so educated and they discussed things like uh, the Holy Grail series of, 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 poems uh from the medieval and renaissance era and mick got to show off his literary thing and it's also it's interesting to contrast you know, mick jagger with keith and ryan in that she describes him very much as someone who uh was a good stepfather to her baby nicholas who was a, a stable steady sort of family guy who wanted to have a stain a sane steady home environment that um marianne uh found extremely stifling and she she had affairs on him the entire time um and there's also an interesting scene that and i'll get to more of this in, in the second part of the book but there's an interesting scene i want to get uh to where she did acid with keith brian 
and Tara Brown. And Tara Brown, like I said before, is the Guinness heir who's best known as the man who blew his mind out in the car in the Beatles' Day of the Life. And said, um, here we go. Keith, Brian, and Tara lay around on sofas in exquisite clothes from various raids on Granny Takes a Trip and the Chelsea Antique Market. Giggling euphoria took over as the acid came on. How astonishing they all look, I barely managed to think, just before truly drastic alterations began to take place. Every thought I had took on a physical dimension, molecules breaking up. One really get, rarely gets to see one's friends in such detail. Subatomically, great. It's something I'd always hoped I'd be granted. Second sight. Nothing was hidden from me. They were becoming transparent as if I'd put on x-ray specs. Their true natures were being bared, their spirit selves. And along with this, I almost simultaneously, I saw enactments of their past lives, tiny mercurial operas. They, Keith, Brian, Tara, I was not surprised to learn, had existed throughout history. In these soul genealogies, Brian appeared as Pan, the urbane satyr in crushed velvet, horned, goat-legged, a voluptuous, overripe god gone to seed. Not Pan himself exactly, more a foppish noble playing a fawn at the court of Versailles, blowing on his reed pipe, silhouetted against a painted wild mountain backdrop, a debauched aristocrat pursuing a flock of diaphanously clothed peasant girls dressed as nymphs. But Pan is out of breath and reaches for his asthma inhaler. Now Keith as Byron, the injured, tormented, doomed romantic hero with wild hair and gaunt visage, not Brian the Hooray, the upper-class dilettante musing on a crepuscular sky at Sunium, darker, more alive, an eruptive, restless presence violently bursting through, Byron as punk, a fusion of decadence and surging yabo energy, rock raunch, hipster cool, and I don't give a fuck defiance, deftly grafted on the languid, world-weary pose of romantic agony. Where Brian was soft, malleable, vague, and unstable, everything about Keith was angular, flinty, compact, hard, distinct. The hatchet face, chiseled rock-hard features, Indian scout's eyes that bore through everything, the mysterious rider appearing out of nowhere, hypnotic, sinister, disturbing, accursed by fate intensity, set off against gorgeous clothes, self-mocking humor, and a sardonic turn of phrase. Tara Brown was pure courtier. He had none of Keith's incredible life force pulsing through him. I'd known him for a long time, blah, blah, blah. Tara was very unhappy. He liked me, and since he was the Guinness heir, I also knew he must be very, very rich. But there was no strength there, no direct current. The stones were the two aristocracy heir, and Tara faded in comparison. And then I want to um, play another song from Marianne Faithful, and this is a sort of a flash forward to the next part of the book and and, and where her journey is going to take her. This is her version of Sister Morphine, which is best known as the Rolling Stones song from their 1971 album, Sticky Fingers, which originally appeared with a Jagger Richards songwriting credit. In recent years, that's been corrected to be a Jagger Richards faithful songwriting credit because by all accounts, she wrote the lyrics. And here's her in 1969 singing Sister Morphine.
And that was uh, Marian Faithful's original version of Sister Morphine, which wouldn't be released. I don't know if it was ever released. I think it eventually came out, but it definitely didn't come out before the Stones version of it. And then uh, there's another scene that I want to describe where where she has another vision about Mick. Um, She says, uh, yet again, another acid trip. And she says, um, Mick and I hadn't been in Harley House very long besi- before we decided to take a trip together. Now, this is after Mick has convinced her to leave her husband and move in with with, with him, which is a whole story in itself. It's just uh, one I haven't been obsessed with. So I'm sharing the Brian and Keith and Mick dynamics. But anyway, one afternoon, as one did things in those days, we made preparations. We got out the Ravi Shankar records, Blonde on Blonde by Dylan, Otis Redding, all the sonic spirits that would accompany us on our journey. We took the phone off the hook and dressed for the occasion. Just as the acid was coming on, I remember Mick going over to the gramophone carrying one of those green transparent plastic records that the Indian ragas came on. He sat down very ceremoniously in the middle of the floor. It was Ali Akbar Khan, flute and tabla, and as the flute began to quaver, Mick rose up, his whole body twisting in a corkscrew like a cobra coming out of its basket. And then he started to dance. It was a specific sort of dance, an Indian dance, the dance brightly painted men and women do in Bengali movies, very different from the lascivious dance he does in performance. This was pure beauty and exaltation, a great dance and dancer, another being. And as Mick danced, an extraordinary change came over him. It was as if he were unwinding himself like a mummy, shedding layers of wrapping, revealing at the core of the suburban English boy's body a many-armed, blue-headed, dancing god, the macrocosmic Mick. I was seeing Mick, the brain bell jongleur, the real Mick, if there is such a thing. The dance was very, very fast, practically on one spot. He was starting to vibrate so quickly his body was breaking up into molecules, shimmering phosphorescent particles. I was completely transfixed, hardly breathing. As he moved his fans and his hands in stroboscopic flutters, they multiplied and fanned out, overlapping each other. The formality was incredible. He had become Shiva, the Indian god of destruction. I hadn't realized until then that I was living with somebody who at odd moments could turn into a god. It was a blissful, ecstatic moment suspended in time. We could have gone on all night. We hadn't even got to the part we were going to make love. And fuck me if the bell doesn't ring and in walk all four small phases with their gear, amps, and guitars and mic stands. At the high point of our trip, they dropped by to jam, man. (laughs) So that was life with Mick Jagger. And I'll talk more about her life with Mick Jagger infamous bust at Redlands in the aftermath um, and, uh, and the, the, the death of Brian Jones and the impact of her, her various suicide attempts and finally leaving Mick and descending into heroin addiction only to redeem herself with a comeback album and survive the tale. So for Let It Roll, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I unfortunately couldn't get David Dalton or Marianne Faithful for this episode, but still wanted to talk about their books, so I hope they don't mind my telepathic intrusion. We'll be back next week with part two. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate continues the Let It Roll Nightmare series with a recast of his 2018 conversation with Rolling Stones biographer Stanley Booth. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 